Well, at this point in our service, we're going to be looking at our text. And today we're dealing with Galatians chapter 1, verses is it 8 through 10, 6 through 10. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one who, the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval of man, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron, and uh, still. Uh, it's my privilege, it's my honor to open up the Word with you this morning. We're going to be, uh, like we just read, looking at uh, a passage in Galatians. I, uh, I hope you all had a, a Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope you have had some time uh, over the past few days to rest and uh, reflect, and uh, I hope that your year, 2019, has been uh, in some ways a good one for you. Um, For many of you, I'm sure it's been a difficult year, and as you reflect back on this year, for some of you, I'm sure you're ready to to turn the page to 2020, and we all look forward with hope to what that's going to bring. Um, But today, I just want to take some time and look at a passage of Scripture together and talk about Jesus for a little bit. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, So we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1. So I am... I love, I love language. I love words. Um, I like to talk about words. I love playing word games. Um, I, think, I just think language and the way it develops is just interesting. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating about language is the way that it changes over time. Um, that if you look back and you read things from the past, even though they're written in English, that one word can mean something totally different a hundred years ago than what it means today. Um, And I just find that fascinating. Some people are really bothered by that. And they really want to say, like, language should be set in stone and words should never change their meaning. But it's, it's not like a good or a bad thing. It just happens. It's how we communicate. We use words. Words are tools. They communicate meaning. Let me give you an example of this. Um, C.S. Lewis in the book, Mere Christianity, talks about, uh, as, a, as an example of this very point, the word gentleman. And I don't know the degree to which you're familiar with the word gentleman, but originally, the meaning of gentleman was very specific. A gentleman was a person, a man, who owned land and had a family crest, a family coat of arms. And if you said someone was a, was a gentleman, you were describing specifically that. Now, you know and I know that that is not the way we use the word gentleman today at all. At some point over time, the meaning shifted to where now gentleman just means a guy with good manners, more or less. Um, it became kind of a compliment. Whereas before it was a descriptive word, it meant something very specific. Um, somebody could be 
an absolute jerk and still be a gentleman. Today, um, you can call someone a gentleman and you're saying nothing about his, his social status or his family history or what he owns or doesn't own. You're just saying, he's a nice guy. Probably he treats other people well. I went to, um, for undergraduate, my undergraduate, uh, I went to a, a tiny little school in Indiana called Wabash College. Anybody Wabash College? No? Why is that funny? What's, no? Okay. Wabash College is one of only three colleges in the United States that is still all male. There you go. It's a fun fact. Um, and at Wabash College, they make a big deal, or used to make a big deal when I was there, made a big deal about the fact that there is only one rule at Wabash College for conduct, for student conduct, and it's called the gentleman's rule. And the one rule for Wabash College students is a Wabash man will at all times conduct himself both on and off campus as a gentleman. And that's the rule of conduct. Now, if you take the original definition of the word gentleman and try to put it into that rule, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, right? At all times, both on and off campus, you must have a coat of arms and own land. Otherwise, we're kicking you out of the school. Like, that's not, but, but the word shifts. And, and while I was there at school, the meaning of that word became very important because now it's not just like, oh, that's interesting or whatever. It's not just a compliment. Now it's the rule. And now everybody, every, every male who is a student at Wabash has to determine, am I following the rule? Am I being a gentleman? Which opens up the big question of, well, what does that mean? And so we'd have discussions and conversations about what is a gentleman, what does it mean to be a gentleman? Is doing this, is that being a gentleman? And it, the, the broadness of it opened itself up to so many different interpretations that you could basically, and here's like, this is the practical outworking of it for Wabash College students, and I'm not offending anybody because we've clearly established that none of you are Wabash College alumni, thanks, but... Um, kind of the outworking of it was we could do pretty much whatever we wanted, right? And then just say, well, I mean, I'm being a gentleman, right? It fits within the definition because there's no definition. Now, those maybe are meaningless or, I mean, mildly important examples of how language changes and the necessity of having specific definitions of words. But kind of the big picture, and and here's where I'm going with all this, so I apologize if that felt like totally off topic, but I promise it's connected. Because our language shifts and changes, it is very possible for us to have a conversation where we are using the same words, but meaning completely different things. And if that's true on much, much more important matters than whether or not someone owns land or how someone's behaving in college, on much, much more important matters, we could be talking about something and not at all understand what each other are saying. So here at Trailhead and here in the Bible, there's this word that gets used a lot. And the word is gospel. And here's the question I want to ask this morning. When we use the word gospel, and we, as 
As leaders of this church, as preachers at Trailhead, we believe the gospel is central to everything we do. We believe it's the foundation of who we are as a people and how we live. And all of this is all centered around the gospel. So we use the word a lot. But do we, when we say the word and when we hear the word, are we saying and hearing the same thing? Does it matter what the definition of that word is? Are there consequences if you and I don't hear and see and understand the word gospel to mean the same thing? So that's what I want to look at this morning. What does that word mean? And not in a, well, it means lots of different things to lots of different people, and so it's not really all that important kind of a way. But in a, as we look at the scripture, Paul says, the Bible says, that this word, the idea behind this word, what's being communicated by this word, is absolutely vital. And if we want to have any sense of unity together, if we want to have any sense, and I'm not trying to exaggerate, I just believe this is what the scripture teaches, if we want to have any understanding of how we can know God and follow him, we have to understand the meaning of this word. We're going to talk about what the word gospel means today. Now, as I say that, you may be thinking, and I just said, we talk about this all the time. And to that, I would say, you are right. In fact, um, and I had this conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago, I will freely admit this. I, as a preacher, I have one sermon, okay? This is it. This is the only one I have. If you've ever heard me preach before, it's this. This is all I've got. Okay, I have different introductions and different conclusions, but the meat of it is all, it's this, it's the gospel, it's all I've got. Because I believe that that's the message of the New Testament, it's the message of scripture, it's the message from God for us. And the implications of it and the applications of it may change and may be different and we can pull out different aspects of it and look at it in different ways from time to time, but at the core, this is it. And so it's absolutely vital that we be on the same page as to what the gospel is. Gospel is not a a trailhead word. Of course, it's it's a Bible word. Um, It's a translation. Obviously, our Bibles um, are English translations from words that were written thousands of years ago in Greek or Hebrew. Um, The Greek word... Words that are translated as gospel. Um, There are two of them that are frequently translated as gospel. I'm going to try to get this right. My family was laughing at me last night because I was listening to a pronunciation online to make sure I could pronounce the Greek word correctly. Because I have preached before and afterwards somebody came up to me, you mispronounced that Greek word. And I'm I'm like, I'm I'm sorry, what did you think of the sermon? Well, you mispronounced that Greek word. So... (laughs) The Greek word for gospel, the Greek word that's translated gospel is euangelion, or 
uh, this is the hard one, Uangalitso, um, Uangelion 77 times in the New Testament, Uangalitso 55 times in the New Testament. Here's what it means, both of them. Um, one's a noun, one's a verb. It literally means it's a good message. The English word gospel comes from two words, good spell or good news. So here's what it is. Literally, the word gospel literally means a good message. Which could be helpful to us, but on its own doesn't really get us where we need to go. What good message? Any good message? Is the gospel anything that is happy or heartwarming news? Right? When you, when you call your parents and tell them you got engaged, is that the gospel? Right? When you find out you got a promotion at work, is that the gospel? It's good news. It can't just be that. So, so what does it mean in the New Testament? And why does it matter? So here's where we need to look at the book of Galatians. Galatians, um, Paul uses those two Greek words in this passage that Jeff just read. Uh, verses 6 through 10, Paul uses those two Greek words seven times in those five verses. They're not always translated as gospel. Um, They're also translated as preached or preach. But those two Greek words come up over and over in this tiny little passage. Um, And the point that he's making in talking about it so much is this. The idea that there's good news there's a very specific good news. And not all good newses, not all euangelion, not all gospels are actually good news. There's one gospel that's truly good. And there's a whole bunch of imposters that are not. And so here's what he says. Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Galatia. We're not going to spend a ton of time on the context of this. Um, We preached through the book of Galatians all the way back in 2014, um, which when I say all the way back, 2014 doesn't seem that long ago, but it it was a while back. Um, So if you're interested, you can go back online and listen to those sermons. But here's what you do need to know. Paul's writing a letter to a church in Galatia, and he's upset about something that's been going on. And right here at the beginning of the letter, in verse 6, he jumps right in. I am astonished. Meaning, this is huge, and I cannot believe this. Paul is like, I am blown away that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, Paul says, I cannot believe what I've heard which is that you have heard the good news. You were called to the good news. You believed the good news and yet you've walked away from it to something else. That this thing which was so good, you for some reason have decided that there's something else that's going to be better. And Paul is like, I can't believe this. This is mind-blowing. Why? Why is he so astonished by this? Because the good news, the gospel is so good that the idea that we would turn from it to anything else makes absolutely no sense. It just doesn't make sense. 
So what is it? What is this good news and what's so good about it? And he, he says it in verse number six. I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The gospel, the good news, is the grace of Christ. The good news is the story that God has shown us unmeasurable grace. That each of us individually and all of us corporately, the whole world, is totally and completely broken by sin. If you were with us through the fall as we've been looking at the book of Romans, and in the beginning of the book of Romans, this is what it was all about. And this is what the first three chapters of Romans lay out, is that we all fall far, far short of any standard that we set for ourselves or that anybody else stands, sets for us, that we are broken, we are sinners. And yet, and yet, Jesus came down into this broken world. He lived a life completely unblemished by sin. He did everything we should have done that we didn't do. He didn't do any of the things we shouldn't have done that we do. He got it all right. And then he took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He took it on himself. He looked at us in our broken mess. He looked at us struggling and failing. He looked at us seeing that we would never, ever, ever on our own be good enough. And he stepped in and took the wrath that we deserve on himself. And he allowed himself, in spite of his power, in spite of his ability to fight off any attack, to push away and be immune from any pain or any suffering, he allowed himself to suffer to take pain, to be arrested, to be tried unjustly, to be executed publicly, to take not just the pain of our punishment, but the shame of our punishment so that people could walk by and laugh at him and point to him and spit on him. All the things that we deserve for the way we have treated him, he took it himself for us. And why? And why did he do it? Totally and completely out of love. Out of mercy. Out of his grace. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of anything we would do. Not because he looked ahead and saw some people who were going to be good people. Some people who were going to do the right thing. And decided he would make a way for them to be forgiven. Solely because he loves. And in his love, he took that punishment. And for us, looking at that, that grace, and it's totally unearned, 
It's not by our will. It's not by our merit. It's totally by the will of God. In fact, Paul says that in verse number four, up above, three and four up above, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This was all God all the way down. It was his choice. It's his work. It's his love. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection being given to us freely by his grace. That peace with God, that deliverance from our sin and our brokenness comes not by us being better, but by him being the best. That he took on himself everything we deserve. And he gives us that completely and totally as a gift. That is news that is extremely good. The fact that I cannot earn that, but it is given to me out of love, if I had to earn it on my own, there's no way I'd ever do it. And when I look at myself and all that I have done wrong, if I were to make a list, and if you're like me, I regularly, in my mind, am making this list of all the reasons God should not love me, of all the reasons no one should love me, of all the reasons I will never be good enough, And yet, and yet, in his love, God is good enough for me. Jesus takes my shame. He takes my sin on himself just because he loves me. Now there are incredible implications to that message, that good news. But all of those implications flow out of that news. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died as our substitute, and rose again in victory so that we can know God totally and completely because of his grace. If that's true, if that's true, that is life-changing. I mean, if that is true, if the creator of the entire universe, the all-powerful God, who made everything, who stands over everything, who controls everything, who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous, if he, if he, solely out of love, chose to sacrifice himself for me? And then he invites me to follow him? Why, why in the world would I ever want anything else beyond that? If he's in charge of everything, he's the creator of everything, and he loves me, and he's inviting me into that love... 
What possible mindset could make me say, okay, but maybe, maybe I'll go this way instead. Like, that makes no sense. And Paul says, I'm astonished. If you believe that, if you were called to that, if you've been told that your greatest debt has been totally and completely paid, that you would say, any other offers? What? This makes no sense. So what was it? What was the different gospel? What were they turning to? What was the misunderstanding in verse 7? Where he says, well, in verse 6, that you're turning to a different gospel. Not, verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here's the problem, Paul says. It's not, and in this case, in Galatia, in the church in Galatia, the problem was not that people were outright rejecting the story of Jesus and walking away and saying, I just don't believe that. Now, some people, that might be where you are. You hear that message and you say, I just don't believe that's true. Either I don't believe Jesus was historically real or I don't believe that his love is totally that unmerited or I I just can't comprehend that story. I just don't buy it. But that's not who Paul's talking to here. What Paul's talking to is a group of people who believed that, kind of. And there were other people, and he refers to them as false teachers and by other even more harsh names later on in the letter, who were coming into the church and teaching that 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 stuff is good. That gospel stuff about Jesus dying and rising again in grace, that's all very good stuff. There's something else you need to go with it. And by adding something to it, they were distorting and twisting the original meaning of the gospel. They were taking a word that had a specific meaning, the good news of Jesus Christ, and they were shifting the meaning, maybe ever so subtly, in such a way that it sucked the very essence and the very core out of the word. And not just the word, because who cares about a word, but out of the message itself. And it was stealing the joy and the freedom that the Galatian Christians should have been walking in. What was it that they were doing? It runs throughout the whole book of Galatians, and we obviously don't have time this morning to read through all of it. Um, Basically, what they were saying was that God's grace was a nice starting point. Now you need to add to it. That it's good that Jesus loved you and he died for you. Good place to start. Now you need to get to work to follow the law, to follow the rules, to measure up. You need to keep by your work and by your merit what was given to you. Paul puts it this way, maybe the the most kind of um, succinct place that he talks about it is in chapter 3, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, here's, here's the message that was being taught. You start out being a Christian by believing the gospel, but then you advance and mature as a Christian by working really hard to follow the rules. You need God's grace, sure, 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 but you need something else. You need grace plus. The problem with that message is grace plus anything is not grace. Because, and here we go with words again, but the definition of grace is that it's a gift that is totally and completely unmerited. And if you can earn it, it's not received by grace. If God's love is something that we work for, then it's not something that's being given to us. But that was what was being taught. That was what the Galatian believers were struggling with. And that was what they were very, very tempted. And it sounds like from what Paul's saying, more than tempted, had actually gone so far as to follow and believe was that Jesus alone is not enough. You have to do something with what you've been given. That is not good news. And that's what Paul says. Not that there is another one. This different gospel is not a gospel. This different good news is not good news. That's just the same bad news being recycled with churchy language. See, all of us all the time, we're always telling a story. We're always telling a story about ourselves and about the world we live in. How the world should work, what it's supposed to look like, and what my role is in it. And whatever your story is and however you fit yourself into that story, we have a narrative of this is the way things are supposed to be. For some of us, it's the good person story. I have to live as a good person and we didn't divide the world into good people and bad people. And I need to be a good person. For some of us, it's the improve the world story. The world is broken. We agree with that. How can I make it better? And what's my part to play? And how do I improve the world? For some of us, it's that feeling of guilt and shame. I need, to, I need to pay off my debt. I need to work hard. I need to make amends. And that's the story and that's the narrative of our life. It's my redemption story of how I'm going to make myself a better person. For some of us, it's that idea of we're always reaching for something better. There's something out there and I know there's something good and I want to get there someday. And if I just keep trying, someday I'm going to get to it. This distortion of the gospel takes all of those stories. It tosses in the idea of asking Jesus into your heart and then clicks back into the same story. I've just got to be a good person. Part of being a good person is, is becoming a Christian. So I'll become a Christian and then I'll just keep working to be a good person. Same story. I, I need to make the world a better place. I just need to look at the world around me and figure out how I can improve it. I've just got to be working to improve the world. 
Ask Jesus into my heart. Jesus, come with me. Help me make the world a better place. And I'm just going to keep working and pushing to make the world better. I know there's something out there, something more. I'm always reaching for it. I'll become a Christian and now I'll just keep reaching for something else, something more, something that's out there. But the good news, the gospel of Jesus, doesn't take our other story and just kind of slot in with it and then continue on. The gospel of Jesus is a totally different story. It's a story of a world that was created by God, wrecked by us, and then rescued and restored by Jesus. And our part in the story is to follow him. And does following him in some ways make us better people, I guess? I mean, yes, Jesus was the perfect person. The more we follow him, the more we will become like him. But that's not the point of the story. It's following Jesus and obeying Jesus and and looking to him as he restores the world, a part of improving the world, kind of. Yeah, I mean, he's improving the world. And as we follow him, we get to be a part of that. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is him. When we are trusting Jesus, fully trusting in him, can we find that something more, that something greater? Yeah, because he's the something greater. And so the story is no longer about us trying to find something greater. It's about having found the greatest thing. The good news of Jesus is a totally different narrative. The good news is that Jesus has already worked, he's already reached, he's already striven for us, and now he invites us simply to follow him. Not to work hard to earn it, but just to follow him because he already earned it. Now that's not necessarily an easier life. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Following Jesus isn't easy, but it's the polar opposite of striving in our own strength to earn what he's already given us. So what we do, if we are trusting in Jesus and what he did, we obey him because we are accepted. We don't obey him to be accepted. When I'm working to be accepted, I'm constantly living under this crushing weight of wondering and worrying about what's going to happen if and when I fail. But when I'm working out of my acceptance, I'm free to follow him. I'm free to obey him, knowing that I am loved and I am secure regardless of my success or my failure. Let me give you an example And it comes right from our passage. In verse number 10, Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So this scripture, this passage, 
This single verse um, has been a verse that has just, I'm not even sure the right word, but has just stuck with me, has, it's it's just been right there with me constantly for years now, because and I, I often say this when I'm preaching, and sometimes it's like a joke, but I genuinely mean this, and um, I don't know if anybody else struggles with this the way I do. You might, or you might not. This might be totally foreign to you, what I'm about to share, and that's okay. You can just kind of, don't make funny faces at me because you think I'm weird. Just, just like nod your head and pretend that you understand that this resonates with you, because this, it might be me all alone up here. I don't know. I am constantly worried about what other people think. As evidenced by what I just said, I just realized. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That wasn't in my notes. Um, So, I read this scripture. And knowing the instinct in my own heart to wonder, what does X think about this? How will this person respond if I do this? What do they think about? Look, look, look at verses 8 and 9. Even if we, this is Paul talking about the gospel and the distortion of the gospel. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, to you let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received. Let him be accursed. What does that have to do with this? In my mind, and again, this is just how I'm, because of my own sinful heart and and my own sinful mind, how I'm processing this, that I have this tendency, and this is where I might be all alone on this, but I have this tendency on almost every issue, before I make up my mind about something, to ask, well, I wonder what so-and-so thinks about that. Like, if there's something scripturally that I'm not 100% clear on, I'm like, well, what does this pastor say? Or what does this author say? Or what is this? And I go to all these different sources. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, okay? Like, it's good to get wisdom from other people who are way, way smarter than me because I know I'm not that smart. But I know, I know in my own heart that that's not necessarily always where I'm going. Where I'm going is the people I respect and the people that I like and the people who are persuasive and the people who preach the best or write the best, the people whose team I want to be on, what are they saying? Because I want to be liked and I want to be on the team that's winning. And Paul is saying here, The gospel is so much bigger than that and so much bigger than any, but this news, it doesn't matter how persuasive somebody is, it doesn't matter what their their pedigree is, what their degree is, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven, if it's a messenger coming down from heaven telling you something different, if it's not this news, it's not right. Now for me, that's really hard. Because I want to agree with the people I like and I want to be liked by the people who I agree with. So, here's where I was going with all this. Verse 10. 
When I read verse 10, if, if I read this believing that the gospel is, here's Jesus' grace, plus you better follow all the rules or else, then I read verse 10, it's just a new rule. And the rule here is, live to please God, don't live to please people. For me, that is an incredibly difficult rule to follow. I don't know if it is for you. I am aware that there are people in this world who really don't struggle much with the approval of others. That they just kind of do their thing and they're good with it. God bless you. Okay, for me, that's incredibly difficult. And if I come to this and I'm believing that my relationship and my acceptance with God is based A, on what Jesus did and B, on how well I'm following this rule, I'm in so much trouble. But what if, what if that's not a condemning question? What if what Paul is saying there, in light of what he has just said prior to that, is actually a very beautiful invitation? To move beyond something that is crippling in my own heart into a life that is so much more joyful and fulfilling. Let me play this out a little more. What is it like to live constantly for the approval of others? I'll tell you from my perspective and in my experience, it's, it's practically impossible. And it will wear you out. First of all, because the standard of how to please other people is always changing. The, the goalposts, as the saying goes, are always moving. That what it takes to please people is not the same from minute to minute, let alone from day to day. And just when you think you've got it figured out, somebody else who wants you to believe or do or act in a different way is going to come along and shatter everything. And you're constantly just trying to figure out what do I even need to be doing or saying or wearing or thinking or whatever. When you're living for the approval of others, you're going to write every compliment you hear in the sand and every insult in stone. Every disapproving remark is going to burn into your brain and play on a replay loop over and over and over again. And you will never believe the actual words of approval that you hear. Because as long as there's one person out there who thinks you're wrong, that's what you're going to focus on. And ultimately, what you end up with when you live for the approval of others is you've got to put on a mask, you've got to pretend, and you've got to hide your shame. And inside you know it's all fake. And inside you know at any minute you're afraid that everybody could figure you out. So even when you're at your best and feel like everybody likes you, there's this little voice or maybe loud voice in the back of your head saying, but if they knew, if you slip up, 
It's all going to come crashing down. Now, is that, is that a life of freedom? Is that a life of joy? Is that good news? But then I look at this verse and I say, so that's really bad. So I need to please God instead. But man, can I tell you? Here's the good news. God's standard doesn't shift. The goalposts never move. The problem is those goalposts, to stretch the metaphor a little too far, are really, really far away and really high. In other words, God's standard is impossible for me to meet. Except in the gospel. The gospel allows me to seek my approval from God because Jesus has already gained that approval for me. Because in the gospel, I don't have to worry about whether people approve of me. And if I ask, am I living for the approval of God? The answer has nothing to do with me and has everything to do with Jesus. That the gospel says that when Jesus died on the cross, his blood covers over my sin, and that when God looks at me, his approval of me is not based on my own goodness, it's based on Jesus' goodness given to me. And what does that do? That frees me. That frees me from the constant treadmill of trying to be good enough, trying to measure up, trying to get approval. Without the gospel, I cannot please God or people. Neither one. But in the gospel, when I believe that I am approved by God because of Jesus, And it will never change because Jesus will never change. What he did is a fact and it happened. And if I trust in that, it's secure. What does that do in my heart? It just makes me want more of him. God, you love me that much. You look at me and you see your son... Jesus, you died for me. Please, let me follow you more. I will obey you. Not because I'm afraid, but because I want to. It awakens within me a desire to know more of him, to follow him more. It doesn't. This is, again, we talked about this in Romans. This was the accusation Paul got all the time. Believing that God's grace is free to me, separate from anything I've done, does not within me inspire a desire to go out and sin more. When I believe that God loves me so unconditionally, it doesn't make me in my heart say, then I will reject him. Because of his love, I will run far from him. It does the exact opposite. When I believe, when I truly believe that he loves me that much, then I just want to run to him. Constantly. Our culture and our own hearts scream at us 
a bad news disguised as good news. You've got to be better. You've got to measure up. You have to look like this. You have to do this. You have to say these things. You have to go these places. There is one source of good news. But it is so good. It is so much better. And like Paul would say, why? Why would I turn to anything else? If this news is true, if Jesus really did live and die and rise again for me, where else would I possibly want to go? We're going to take a few minutes to reflect and then we're going to share communion together. If you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. And God, I'm reminded again and again and again of how little I deserve your love and how amazing that love is. How amazing your grace is. God, today, please fill my heart more and more and more with the beauty and the truth of your goodness, your love. Fill my eyes with a vision of you. Fill my ears with the sounds of your voice. Block out the lies, the distortions of the world and of my own evil heart that want to tell me that peace is found anywhere else but in you. God, please call me. Do you pull me to yourself more and more and more? Help us all as a church, together, as believers, to root everything we are, everything we believe, everything we do in that truth, the goodness of your love. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.